I gotta, I'll go ahead and warn you and sort of just put it out there already. Um, a couple years ago, I had a disciple Bible study lesson prepared on the book of Revelation. Uh, we were meeting at our house every Tuesday night uh, for 30-something weeks, and we'd gotten to the end of the study, and we were on the book of Revelation. That night was interesting because uh, within 20 minutes of our study, it was plain to see nobody was going to be paying attention to me. They were paying attention to the sheets of rain that was coming down across their neighborhood. And then their attention came to the, to the um, forecast that we had. And long story short, before you know it, we have golf ball size hail, more rain and more rain. The lights went out. Some of us were huddled in the hallway. A tornado touched down a quarter of a mile away. And I also remind you, getting ready for today, we've been talking about Revelation, all of us in some way, and it was this week that the entire city of Shiner had a blackout. I don't know. So I just want to put it out there that I cannot be held responsible for any world events, any strange weather patterns, or anything that happens in the world. You cannot blame me. And I think you cannot blame the book of Revelation. First and foremost, I want us to make sure that we're on the same page. You often hear, I think, of people who say things about Revelations. Maybe you've heard them say, oh, that book of Revelation, there's some weird stuff going on in Revelations. I've read it once or twice in Revelations. I stay away from that book. If you and I are ever going to understand what John is trying to tell us in the book of Revelation, with all of its imagery, with all of the symbols, with all the weird stuff going on, we have to understand that there is, first and foremost, one Revelation. There is no revelation. The one revelation for John is Jesus Christ. Now that's important to note because as we go on, one of the things we'll see is that the book of Revelation, even though it's got so much going on that we think is crazy, it's a book about worship. If you've ever heard a sermon on Revelation, more likely than anything, it's probably come from the, either the first three chapters of the book or the last two chapters of the book, where we talk about certain messages to certain churches and things that are good and bad about those churches in the first three chapters, or we take the last two chapters and talk about what we think heaven is going to look like. And all that other stuff in between, it's all dragons and beasts and all kind of weird war and judgment stuff going on. But actually, in that middle part of the book that we often skip, so much to do about worshiping. Worshiping the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And all of those, if, you, if you've seen them before, maybe you haven't paid attention, but I bet you've seen some version of the painting, The Light of the World, where Jesus is standing at the door, knocking. Have you seen that painting? Sure you have. Many of you probably have it in your home or some sort, maybe on a bookmark. That's an image from Revelation. It's an easy image. It's one we like. It's one we can deal with. It's one we can digest. And so we like that one. But even beyond that, there are so many songs of worship that come out of Revelation as well. Many of them that 
you probably know, and many, many more that you've probably never even heard of. And those songs fit in to what John is trying to do. He is trying to tell you and I that Christ is worthy of our worship. Now, you have to stay with me so I can show you that, but uh, you have to trust me right now. Most of the church, though, we've been okay with the Jesus part of it. We like Jesus knocking at the door. We can make nice songs out of that. We like singing by the riverside and talking about the new Jerusalem and the new garden. And we like thinking about that one glad morning when we fly away. Don't we? So it's the Jesus side of Revelation that we like and that we understand. It's the whole things to come part that bothers us. Or that messes with us. It's the things to come part that seems to have often captured our attention and made the book of Revelation either, as some have said, the most insanest of books or the ultimate guide to survival on earth and everything else in between. So I think it's a good place to start when we think about this word apocalypse. It's the Greek word apocalypse. And the translation for that is an uncovering or a revealing. And so we call it revelation. And if we think about that word apocalypse, which isn't used very much in the book, by the way, a good question to ask is, what exactly is God revealing to John? What has God revealed to John that is so important? I think your answer to that question depends upon how you look at Revelation, how you read the book of Revelation. So, for example, we may think, well, Revelation is a glimpse into the struggle, into the hardship of people like John and his community, the ancient church, the battle that they had with the Roman Empire. We may look at the words of Revelation and see all of these, these struggles and these fights going on and think, you know, John has in his mind what he has to deal with every day, what the people of his churches have to deal with every day. We call this a preterist viewpoint because it has to do with the past. So that as we read these words of Revelation, what we are reading is John's message to his people in his day. How to overcome the Roman Empire, how to be sure that God is going to win this struggle with, very particularly, Rome. And so if we have a precarious viewpoint, what we are saying is that John is speaking only to his time. That's one viewpoint. But another thought is this idea that maybe the book of Revelation is a futuristic blueprint for what the destruction of the world will look like. How the end of the world will play out. Well, that's probably the view that most of us are familiar with, that Revelation sort of spells out what's going to happen at the end of the world, uh, piece by piece, sometimes for some people, year by year, and so on and so forth. And we have this historic, historic viewpoint. What we are saying is that Revelation is pointing merely to the future about events that either for us have already happened or are getting ready to happen. And we need to know they're about to happen. 
Certainly, again, that's the idea that many of us are familiar with because that's what's on TV, that's what's on the movies, that's what's in the popular books, and I'm sure many of us have read. It's an idea that's been uh, given and, and built on and, and built on and built on. But, and there's a lot more you can say about that, but I think when we have that viewpoint, when we read the book of Revelation, what tends to happen is we wonder which president is the Antichrist. And depending on which party you're with, that probably dictates which one's him, right? Oh, yeah, like you're not into politics like that. Mm-hmm. Or if we have this viewpoint, we think, okay, um, which, which, which uh, empire, which government is going to be the beast? Which one do I have to look out for? Which technology is going to give me a mark I need to be scared of? You see, the idea is that there is something that's about to happen that we have to be on the lookout for if we take that viewpoint. But, if Revelation is merely a picture of an ancient community's struggle, then it might miss having anything to say to you and I today some 2,000 years later. And if it's some mere prediction of things that's going to happen 2,000 plus years later, then it probably had very little to say to its original audience as well. And so because of that, many of us have began to read Revelation in another way. And this approach, we call it the idealist viewpoint because we understand or we see that in Revelation what we have are, are spiritual truths about the world that we live in. That there are truths about the reality of life here on earth. And part of that reality is life here on earth can be difficult. I mean, look at John. He's dealing with difficulty himself. He's not worried about the future. He's worried about the reality that is his right now. Part of the reality is that there is suffering. There is pain to endure. There is injustice. There was then and there is today. There is divide. There is my team versus your team. And what I believe is more important than your, what you believe. There is still that. Those are realities that we live into, that we see today. There's still poverty. There's still racism. There's still distrust. There is still evil. These are realities of this world. And I think what John is trying to remind us is that these realities are not God's design. The way that things are, not the way God intended for them to be. And many of us live into that reality of, of suffering and, and pain and, and so on and so forth. And we know that this can't be what God wanted for our lives. But it's the reality that John knew as well. See, most likely he was exiled to this little bitty island because of his faith. By his own account, he's been sent there because of what he believes about Jesus. Now, we don't know for sure, but we're pretty confident in saying that he was, yes, exiled. He suffered some form of persecution. But even in that reality, he is able to see something. 
that God wants. He's able to see an image of the world that God has laid out before him, even in that current reality of the world the way it is. And even so, even despite his own exilement, even despite his own persecution he's had to face, even despite his own pain and suffering, he is able to offer us a vision. What Revelation is full of, right? Visions. You see all these, these visions that scare us. Now we often read Revelation and we're turned off because of what we think we see. We see these images of beasts and judgment and war and so on. And these things tend to bother us. At least if they're not on the silver screen. Hmm? We read these, we don't know what to do. But part of why it bothers us, I think, is because we don't know how to imagine the way John does. We don't know how to let our minds be open to see God's imagination for the world. We often are used to getting direct answers. Right? We want to read something. We want the preacher to tell us, what does this mean? What does this say here? What am I supposed to remember? Is this going to be on the test? We expect, we're used to having direct answers. And friends, I'm going to tell you, if you read the book of Revelation, good luck with that. You're not going to find direct answers because that's not what John is trying to do. John has been given a vision. The other part of it, I think, truth be told, um, so much of the, the vision of Revelation is based in the Old Testament. And I'm not asking you to confess before God and all of us today, but we don't know our Old Testament very well, do we? We certainly don't understand it very well. We certainly don't understand it the way John did. And we miss so much of Revelation because of that. It comes off as weird. It comes off as strange. It comes off as crazy, even. We also miss out because we think Revelation is one of a kind. That Revelation is the only weird book that's ever been written for Christians to read. But in fact, Revelation is only one example of what we call apocalyptic literature. That is to say that there are plenty of other examples of things just like Revelation that Christians were reading, that they were listening to, that they probably liked a whole lot. Revelation is not the only one that's out there. There are other, there are other examples of, of apocalyptic reading that have been passed on to the Christian church. So part of what we need to understand is that so much of how Revelation reads is a part of what it's supposed to do. It's a part of its literature. Right? When you put a song on the radio, you may not understand it, but you expect that song to rhyme, don't you? And if it doesn't rhyme, it kind of messes with you a little bit. You don't know, hey, where's the rhyming word? Why? Because that's what it's supposed to do. Watch this. If your daddy's name is Jim, and if Jim swims, and if Jim's slim, the perfect Christmas gift for him is a set of Slim Jim Swim Fins. But if your daddy's name is Dwight, and he likes to look at birds at night, the gift for Dwight that might be right is a bright Dwight bird flight. Night sight light. But never give your daddy a walrus, a 
walrus with whiskers is not a good pet. And a walrus which whispers is worse even yet. When a walrus lisps whispers through tough, rough, wet whiskers, your poor daddy's ear will get blispers and bliskers. Exactly. I didn't have to tell you who wrote that. Because of what it did, because of the tools that it used, you knew exactly who wrote that, didn't you? And if we understand the tools that the book of Revelation... I'm not comparing the book of Revelation to, you know, green eggs and ham. Sam, I am. But what I'm suggesting to you is that they both used tools that were common for what they were trying to do. And for apocalyptic literature, what's common... Are images, bold images. What's common is a struggle, cosmic struggle, getting played out in words. What's common are, are, are beasts and dragons and hurt and pain and how to deal with those. Other characteristics are the idea of ethics as we deal with pain. How do we go through life doing what we know to be good when everything around us is bad? Repentance is important in apocalyptic literature as well. And of course, visions are important. I want you to think about visions. Maybe you have a boss or a pastor and we say that that person sets out a vision for the workplace or for the church. What does that mean? You could probably say a lot, but one thing you could say is that that pastor, she or he, has an imagination of what the church or what the company is to look like in the future. An imagination of where it is going and how it will get there. That's what a vision is. It's an imagination. You can't say, I have a vision that what it's going to look like without imagining it because you don't know what it's going to look like. It's not there yet. And so you imagine. Is that fair to say? And so what does God give John? A vision. John's not given more rules. You know, we're not getting the 25 commandments this time, the one we missed before. We're not adding more laws. God has given John vision so that John can imagine how it is to be to get where God is showing him. Vision takes imagination. Vision takes imagination to see through the current reality of things to see what it could be. Vision also takes courage too, doesn't it? Because if we don't know what's in front of us, that can be a very scary thing to pursue. And certainly for us as God's people, vision takes faith as well, that we have to trust God that no matter what, God is going to be there. And God is going to help us. And it's that faith that we have, I think John would tell us, that is not in vain. See, we worship Christ. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He is the Almighty. He's the one that starts the letter before we get into any idea of vision. What do we start with? We start with Christ. 
Because everything begins with Jesus. And so John wants us to see that in Christ we have something worthy to worship. And in Christ, particularly, there's, there's three things that, that we see that we can relate to today. We talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the idea that God came down to dwell with us. We celebrate that at Christmas. Sure, we've gotten off focus and we get all into Santa and presents and decorating, but the point of Christmas is that God came to be with us. In Jesus, we see this crucifixion. We see the pain and the humiliation that God was willing to go for because of this divine love for all, each one of us. That the crucifixion shows us just how much God loves each one of us. And then we have the resurrection of Jesus that reminds us that not even death can overcome God. That God has power over everything, even the grave. Are you all with me? Because I think as John is reminding us of that, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, these words mean something for John. And they should mean something for us as well. It should mean something meaningful for our faith. You see, pinpointing, using Revelation to pinpoint dates and events that are supposed to happen, um, we haven't been that very good at it. In fact, we're owing a million. Dates have come and gone. Governments have come and gone. And you know what? None of it's been tied to the book of Revelation. Revelation doesn't help us explain changing weather patterns or predict who's going to be the next leader of the universe. But it does show us that despite the reality of this life, that there are struggles in this life, that there is pain in this life, that we will have to endure because of our faith in God in this life, that even so, God's will for this world and for each one of us is greater. That God has something that we can live into that is greater than our reality right now. But we have got to learn how to imagine what that can look like. We have got to learn to imagine what, what Christ coming to the world means for us. How it changes our outlook. How it changes the way we see the world. How it changes the way we do ministry. We've got to imagine how the crucifixion changes our heart. And changes our status before God. We've got to imagine how the resurrection can have direct impact on our lives. Not something we talk about on Easter, but something that we live out every single day. We've got to imagine what our lives and our world could look like if those words really mean anything to us. That's what John is trying to get us to do. Imagine, imagine what we could look like, what we could be because of what Christ has done and because of who Christ is. My friends, the first promise of the apocalypse 
that I want you to remember, write down if you need to, is this. That there is a better way to live. You know the present reality of the world. You see the news. You know what's going on in your own life. But God has something better for us. It's in the rule of Christ's incarnation because Christ came to us, because Christ overcame death. That shows us that God wants something more for us. After this, I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looked like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones are twenty-four elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne, and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing. Holy, 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 the Lord God the Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Imagine, imagine that God has something better for us. Amen.